Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When I was in seminary, I landed a a pretty prestigious job. I was a TA for North Park's brilliant New Testament professor, Klein Snodgrass. Some of you know that name. He actually just retired uh, last year after four decades at North Park. I landed this job as a first-year student because I had already completed my studies in Biblical Greek and my undergraduate degree, and he needed TAs who had a good working knowledge of Greek. It was a prestigious job, not because it paid well, it did not pay well, nor because it helped advance my career in any special way. I don't think it really did. It was prestigious because Klein's TAs were always kind of cool. They were bright and studious and everyone knew them. So I felt out of place and underqualified almost immediately. But I tried to roll with it. Klein had a reputation for being a very demanding professor to work for. Ever a Southern gentleman, he was always, always warm and kind, but he was also a brilliant man and a tireless worker, and he demanded a lot from his TAs. For my first semester, I read thousands of pages for him, particularly on the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven as he worked on his book on parables, which is still the best and most definitive book on the parables and likely will be for decades to come. At the end of the first semester, I began to transition my work from that reading research into grading some translation worksheets and some essays for his senior level classes. During finals week, he asked me, Lars, I know it's busy, but do you have the capacity to grade the long essays for the final on our senior exegesis class? In an aim to please, as I am wont to do, I said yes, and I took on this challenge. I sat down for an evening and began to look at these essays, and I started to panic. Each one was three to four pages long, handwritten, scribbled, and I realized that this level of exegesis was was actually beyond what I had learned in my undergrad, and I knew that I was in over my head. I wasn't qualified to be evaluating these essays, but... The prospect of having to walk into Klein's office and tell him that I couldn't do it was too embarrassing for me. What if he couldn't continue to hire me at that point, employ me at that point? What if he made me take all my Greek classes again because I didn't know enough? So I decided to grade them the best that I could to the best of my abilities and hope for the best. And that's what I did. A few days after finals were over, I got a call from Klein. Lars, are you available to come and meet in my office? I'm not going to try and do an impression of him. He has a wonderful southern drawl, but would you like to come and are, are you available to meet me in my office? I was nervous. I think I knew that something was coming, but, but maybe not. Maybe he just had some more work to throw my way over the holiday break. So I walked into his office and I sat down, and I'll never forget what Klein said to me. He said, Lars, we're friends, right? I replied, yes, okay, and Lars, friends can speak honestly with one another, right? Yes. Then I'd like for you to explain what happened with these exegesis essays. I saw the stack of essays, which I'm sure were graded wildly unevenly, and I owned up to it all. I was in over my head, I had overextended, I should have asked for help. 
I think of that question often. We're friends, right? We're friends, right? And I've even used that question in instances in my life when I've had to speak a difficult word to someone that I cared about. That question haunts me in a good way. I'd like to talk about rhetorical questions this morning because I think that, in large part, is what this sermon series is really all about. This morning, we begin our sermon series entitled Question and Answer as we study the questions that God asks us. We are often so consumed with the questions that we have for God. Why God this? Why God that? And we can overlook the fact that throughout Scripture, both Old and New Testament, God is asking questions of humans, profound questions, questions that I think you'll see as you, as you hang around this summer, that he continues to ask us, questions that perhaps should haunt us all. But let's start by asking an obvious question. Many of you have already thought it. Why does God need to ask questions of human beings at all? Isn't that kind of a knock on God? I mean, it's said that God is omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent or all-knowing, all-powerful, and ever-present, well, if that's true, then he shouldn't have to ask us anything because he already knows the answer to his question or he has the power to influence the way that we're going to answer that question. But these questions that God asks in Scripture are primarily rhetorical questions. Not everyone, I think, but most of them are rhetorical questions. It's not as if he asks them because he doesn't know the answer to those questions, but rather he asks because he wants us to stop and really think more deeply. In our text today, do we really assume that God doesn't know where Adam is when he says, where are you, Adam? Of course he knows where Adam is. This is a question for Adam and Eve's benefit. I got pretty deep into the function of rhetorical questions this week. I actually read some articles in doctoral dissertations, which are always fun, on rhetorical questions. And I actually learned quite a bit. The rhetorical question is usually defined as any question asked for a purpose other than to obtain the information the question asks. Does that make sense? Any question asked for a purpose other than to obtain the information the question asks. For example, if or when somebody says to me, what's wrong with you, Lars? It's actually a statement regarding someone's opinion of me rather than a genuine request to know what I think is wrong with me. Similarly, when someone responds to a tragic event by saying, why me, God, crying out, why me, God? I think it's more likely an accusation or an expression of feeling than a request for God to actually explain what's happening in that moment, usually. These are fairly obvious rhetorical uses that we see and we hear quite often. But some rhetorical questions are far more complicated. In Shakespeare's 18th sonnet, he asks, Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Again, this is a rhetorical question, but it's a more nuanced kind of rhetorical question, isn't it? In which one asks the opinion of those who are listening. This is your word of the day. That's actually called an anasonosis. Anasonosis. A rhetorical question with a, with a definite ethical dimension, encouraging dialogue and endearing the listener to the questioner. Anasonosis. And I think anasonosis is really the character 
of God's question, uh, his, his numerous questions to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. Let me read them again for you. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she ate of its fruit. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman that you gave me gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, to Eve, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent tricked me, and I ate. So let's set the stage here for this text as a reminder for you. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the heavens and the earth with water and land and with life flowing freely, creatures of all sorts soaring high in the sky and beasts roaming on the land and beasts under the waters. But God desires companionship. Someone who is created in his image to share this creation with. So he breathes life into the nostrils of Adam, a man with whom he would like to walk and talk with in the garden. A short moment later, God creates Eve so that Adam might experience the companionship and the love that God has for him with a companion that is much like him. And as he brings Adam and Eve together, he gives them just one command, honor me and love me in all that you do and do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But from every other tree in the garden, you can freely eat. I've given Eden to you to possess. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. But the story turns, as we know. The one rule that God gave to them, they broke. The couple indulges in the fruit. And as the serpent feels joyous in his accomplishment of causing mankind to fall, God's heart is broken. The once- Close communion that the Creator shared with His loved ones is now severed. God created Adam and Eve to be in close relationship with Him. That's what they were created for. And now they're hiding from Him. And they're avoiding Him. They're cowering behind a bush, trying to cover up their nakedness and their shame. And then God comes and He asks them that haunting anasinesis. Where are you? Again, this question isn't really for God. He knows where Adam is. He doesn't need Adam's coordinates. He's not lost. In asking the question, where are you? He's actually asking, do you realize what just happened here, Adam? Why are you suddenly hiding? Let's, let's talk about that. Are you experiencing the, the disconnection and the distance that's growing between us here? And most pointedly, I think he's asking, where are you, Adam, in relation to me. 
This must have been an exceedingly frightening question to Adam and Eve. It's very possible that they thought that God was looking for them in order to kill them. I mean, he did say, don't eat from this tree lest you die. If they were honest in their answer, yes, we we did this thing, would it cost them their life? This question is is a very honest moment of truth for Adam and Eve. In navigation, they have a term for this. It's called the process of reckoning. Reckoning is the process of calculating where you are located. If you've ever been on a ship in the ocean, maybe on Lake Michigan, or on a hike in the desert, or on a canoe, or in a canoe on a river, you know the important process of reckoning. Because my guess is if you've done any of those things, you've had an experience of being lost before. In order to reckon, you have to know where you've been and what factors led you to where you are now. Some factors might be speed or course or wind or natural topography. But reckoning is vital. Because without reckoning, you have no chance of getting back on course or charting a future course. In God's question, where are you? I think he's leading Adam to a point, a moment of reckoning. Later in verse 13, when he asks Eve, what is it that you have done I think he's doing the same with her. This is a moment when Adam and Eve have to figure out where they are if they want any chance of charting a new path forward. And it seems clear to me that they understood that this was a moment of reckoning. They understand this anasinesis because Adam doesn't answer by saying, hey God, uh, yeah, I'm over here. Just keep walking a little bit bit over to your left. No. Adam goes through a reckoning process and he says, I heard you, and I was ashamed. Eve doesn't say, oh, you know, I was kind of confused about which tree you were talking about. I didn't know exactly which one was the tree of life and which one wasn't. No, she goes through a reckoning process, and she says, I was tricked, and yes, I ate. They understood the deeper meaning behind the question, and in response, they confessed their sin, and they told God why they were distancing themselves from him. And while they might have expected God to take their lives for doing the one thing that he told them not to do, instead, they found a God who cared enough about them to let them go through a reckoning process, to help them chart a new course by recognizing where they are and how they got there. He wasn't seeking them to shame or punish them, but he was actually pursuing them to offer grace and restore their relationship with him. He asks, where are you in relationship to me? Not for them to feel distance, but rather to give them an avenue back into relationship, closeness with him. I think often of Klein and his haunting anasinesis toward me. We're friends, right? And friends can speak honestly with one another, right? That was a question of reckoning, a moment of reckoning for me. A question that filled me with fear because I knew that I had done something to compromise my relationship with him. Something that could cost me my job and cause me shame. But he forever serves as a reminder of the way in which God loves and cares for me as he has loved and cared for humanity from the very beginning of creation. 
When Klein asked those questions, my answer was obviously yes. And then I went on to, to own where I was and how I got there. I wanted to do well by you, and I was too embarrassed to tell you that I was in over my head, and I feel ashamed, and I'm so sorry that I've created extra work for you. I'm so sorry I put you in this position. Klein went on to forgive me, to reset the parameters of our working relationship by saying, next time, just communicate with me, because I need to be able to trust you, and I do trust you. He continued to trust me and give me work, and I'm a better man for his guidance and his care. He valued relationships over results and remains a radical reminder of grace for me, and I'm fortunate to call him a friend. I believe that God continues to ask us this question, where are you? Where are you? I think he's asking it to you even today. And it's one of the most important questions for us to ponder. So I'd like to leave you with a few truths for you to think about and to potentially live into from our text this morning. Three things. First thing I want to say is God cares enough about you to pursue you. God cares enough about you to pursue you. God could have simply created two new, much more obedient human beings after Adam and Eve's failings. Klein could have said to me, Lars, this isn't working. I need to hire a different TA, sorry. And neither would have been wrong to do so, by the way. But God's nature is one of constant pursuit of his creation. We sin and we fail, and God continues to ask us, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? And he's not asking because he doesn't know. He's asking because he's seeking to give us grace, not punish us. He wants to restore us. He wants us to ponder the new reality of our situation. And ultimately, he wants us to run toward him again. I'm thankful also that Klein didn't let my shortcomings slide. That was a wonderful thing. He could have easily said, I don't want to have this difficult conversation. Let's just let this slide. But he pursued me in a way that was full of grace and restoration. And I'm thankful that God does not let my sins slide. Oh, we'll just, we'll just gloss over this one. No, he brings me to a point of reckoning. He continues to ask, where are you? Where are you? Full of grace, full of restoration. The second thing is God continually offers a gracious reckoning. In his questioning us, he gives us the tools to figure out where we are, how we got there, and where we want to be so that we can chart a new course. God loves us enough that he enters into our reckoning process, graciously leading us to a better understanding of ourselves if we're willing to let go of our pride, admit where we are, and voice our desire to chart a new course with him. Adam and Eve get a bad rap sometimes for the fall in Genesis 3, and some of that's warranted, but I love their responses. In their responses, I see them responding to God's gracious reckoning. Yes, Yes, I ate. I'm over here. I'm ashamed. That's a sense of where I am, and it gives us an opportunity to tell God where we want to be. The third thing to remember is that God wants relationship with you. He wants to be in relationship with you. You were created to be in right relationship with God. 
The rhetorical device of Anasinesis is all about relationship. He strives to be in a relationship with you and wants you to do the same with him. You were created to be free, naked and unashamed, walking and talking freely in the garden with God. He will never stop pursuing you so that you can enter into right relationship with him. And that means that even when we deserve death for our sins, he pursues us through the person of Jesus Christ so that we might enter into right relationship with him. So might I be so bold as to ask this morning, where are you? If you were to describe where your relationship with God is, what would you say? What words would you use? I just came up with a few. Maybe these fit you, maybe they don't. Are you running? Are you hiding? Are you ashamed? Or resting, maybe? Are you weary? Lost? Do you feel near to Him? Are you in a place with God where you're walking and talking with Him? Are you trusting? Are you leaning on Him? Once you've landed on a word, I think it's time to do some reckoning. Ask yourself, how did I get here? Good or bad, how did I get here? And where do I want to be? If I could offer a next step for you, and this is important, it would be to reach out to someone, reach out to a trusted Christian friend who's following Jesus and tell them where you are. Say, I've got some words that kind of describe where I am in relationship with God, and I want to tell you. I want to tell you what those words are. Find someone who's going to help you draw near to God, who's going to remind you of a God that pursues you and loves you. I would hope that Pastor Paul and I are are packing our schedules this week with with all of you because you've reached out to us and you've said, I I want someone that I trust, that, that I can tell them where I am in my relationship with God because I want to stay in relationship with him. We would love to do that for you. The good news is that we have a God who enters into those questions because he loves you. He pursues you and he wants to be in right relationship with you. Your shame cannot stand before his grace. Your sins can't stop him from coming after you. Your lostness is something that he can always, always locate. God knows where you are and he loves you so much that he wants to draw closer to you. He wants you and your hearts to draw closer to him. Let's pray. And if you feel comfortable, I would just invite you to open your palms maybe on your lap as a sign of openness to God as we pray this morning. God, I thank you that you, from the very beginning of your creation, have been pursuing us. That you continually ask that question, where are you? Where are you? Out of love and grace and restoration. We can so quickly go to shame and to guilt. But I thank you that your motivation is that you want us to be in right relationship with you. Lord, I thank you that you don't let us just slide. You don't just 
let us wander around lost in our sin and our shame, but you come after us and you say, where are you? Come back to me. So Lord, we want to gather together as your children and say, we feel shame. Sometimes we feel lost. We recognize the things that we've done that sever our relationship with you. But we want to open ourselves up to that question this morning and say, here's where I am. Here's how I got here. And Lord, I want to be with you. I want to be close with you. I want to be in right relationship with you. Lord, help us to receive the questions that you ask us with grace and with joy because you love us so much. And may we respond in kind faithfulness to you. We pray in your name. Amen.